Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And in the first part of this two-parter, we started our discussion of a sampling of winter holiday characters that are beyond Santa Claus, which is sort of the most popular one here in the United States. And this uh, two-part episode started because we have gotten lots of requests about Krampus. But there are also some other really unique folkloric icons tied to this time of year, and we wanted to give them a little bit of play. And while most of them have a theme along the lines of teaching or scaring children into behaving, there's still a pretty interesting variety among them. So in the first episode, we talked about Austria's Krampus, Italy's La Bafana, the Epiphany Witch, and Sinterklaas and Zwarte Piet of the Netherlands. And we're going to start this time around with a character that shares some similarities with uh, the other St. Nicholas-based winter visitors that have been uh, already discussed in that episode, and we'll have some more here, and that is Belsnickel. If you've watched the American version of The Office, which I will confess now I have not because it upsets me. You may recall that uh, at one point, Dwight Schrute dressed up as Belsnickel. And Belsnickel is not something that was just cooked up for that sitcom. It's a real character, a German and eventually Pennsylvania Dutch variation on the punishing visitor theme that we see see over and over and over in this theme of uh, holiday visitors. Yeah, and I I didn't put it in this outline, but Belsnickel, the name breaks down where the first part bells is also seen sometimes with a p at the beginning of pills like pelt like fur and then uh nickel like nicholas so it's sort of like a fur saint nick and he covers both the bases of the good and the bad holiday figure for children if you listen to the first part you may recall for example that uh in some of these cases like krampus usually comes alongside saint nick or uh Center Klaus has Zwarte Piet that punishes the children, but Belsnickel doesn't need a sidekick. He uh, wears darker attire. His color palette is a little darker, and as we said, there are furs involved. But he brings both gifts and punishments. And he's sort of like Center Klaus and Krampus kind of mixed together, because he sometimes wears a mask and has a long tongue. So good Good children get candy and gifts under Belsnickel's watch, and bad children get whipped with switches, uh, or he'll rattle his chain at them in a very menacing manner. If they're really bad, he might vandalize their house. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the I mean, what kind of holiday cheer doesn't come with a little vandalism of your house when you're bad? Um, <laughs> I'm imagining this, like, <laughs> darkly palleted Santa Claus TPing somebody's front yard. Right, or like spray painting their garage door like Bad Child lives here. Um, and it's possible that Belsnickel is based on another myth from Germany, which is Rupert the Servant. And Rupert was, according to his varying backstory, either a servant to St. Nicholas or sometimes he is referenced as a servant of Christ. In the Samuel Taylor Coleridge writing, The Christmas Tree, Rupert is portrayed as an emissary of Jesus, visiting every house to greet all of the children, delighting some and visiting others. So very similar to the Santa Claus myth in the regards that he travels and sees all the kids. Else Nichols' first appearance uh, in the United States was in the early 1800s, although his appeal really didn't spread the way Santa Claus's did. The two of them did appear around the same time in the States, though. It seems like the appeal of Belsnickel initially was pretty similar to the Krampus customs that we talked about in part one of this episode. 
Young men really like to throw together uh, Bell Snickel outfits out of old clothes and put on masks and wigs and then parade around the street scaring children. Yeah. Yeah. So in this uh, race to sort of become the Christmas icon of the United States, uh, Bell Snickel had this, you know, crowd of men usually young men dressed up as him stomping through town and they would be invited into homes to help celebrate the end of the harvest season. And this sort of feasting uh, was something they would be a part of. And they might leave nuts or candy for little ones or less desirable treats if a child was deemed naughty. But by some accounts, things could often get out of hand and a raucous bell snickle or two might just break into homes unannounced. So you can see why eventually... Santa won the hearts of families in the U.S. He's a little gentler and easy, easier to deal with, perhaps. But the Bell Snickle con- uh, tradition does continue in various Pennsylvania Dutch communities. So not as popular as he once was, but he is still around. I'm like, but Santa breaks in by coming down the chimney. That's but less not- of a B and E situation, though, and more of a <laughs> not in a malevolent way, though. Right. He's he's invited. People usually leave a snack for him. So there is a a sort of tacit invitation in the mix there. Yeah. Next up, we have a French character tied to the Feast of St. Nicholas who could align a little more closely with Halloween ghoulies than the season that winter giving holidays have come to be associated with. But this character, La Père Foutard, uh, provides a counterpoint to the kindly St. Nick and also a hero story for the benevolent saint is also a character with a lot of branches in his backstory, and sometimes he's conflated with other similar characters. So the translation of Père Fouettard into English gives a hint at his somewhat ominous nature. It actually means father whipper. So the verb fouetter means to whip, which any of our listeners who have taken ballet will likely know. There is a dance step of that name. It's a, a turn where you use your leg as a whip to propel you. So uh, as you may imagine, Père Fouettard whips children who are bad. There's a lot of punishing children with violence in these stories. He dresses in dark clothing, sometimes is characterized as an almost exact mirror of St. Nick, but all in dark tones. He's often ratty looking, he carries a big stick or a bundle of sticks or a whip, and sometimes he's seen with a large basket on his back, which is for stowing potentially bad children. Yeah, the really bad ones always get carted away in all of these stories. Just, uh... Except for the idea of being taken back to Spain, which sounds still to me like a lovely vacation in the Sinterklaas and Zwartepeet myth, but most of them do not take you to a beautiful place. So uh, if Père Fouettard determines that a child has been naughty, he'll leave coal or a bundle of twigs instead of the candy that St. Nicholas would typically leave. And in some homes, these items are displayed for the following year as a reminder to that naughty child to do better in the hopes of better treats the following year. That the origin stories of Father Whipper are uh, even darker than giving out spankings and giving unwanted gifts. And the basic story involves three young people. There's always a kidnapping, but otherwise it varies pretty dramatically. In some versions of the stories, the three children are just random kids who got lost. In other versions, including the oldest one that we know of, which is from the 12th century, they're well-to-do children on their way to to a religious school. 
But uh, in addition to the children being characterized slightly differently in their circumstances, Père Fouettard is also characterized in different ways, depending on which version of the myth you're hearing. He is sometimes an evil butcher who lures the cold lost children into his home with plans to eat them. In that version, he murders them, cuts them into pieces, and puts them into a salting tub with cuts of pork and sometimes makes a stew out of them. In others, he, and occasionally his horrible wife, uh, slit the children's throats to steal their money and their possessions. And this very grisly turn of events is where St. Nicholas enters the story. Because when St. Nick discovers the terrible fate suffered by the three children, he brings them back to life. Although in gentler versions of the story, the children are merely kidnapped and St. Nick comes to the rescue. There's no salting and murdering happening. And after the happy resurrection of the children in pretty much all of these stories, Père Fouettard is repentant and St. Nicholas offers him the chance to travel with him looking for bad children uh, as a way for Père Fouettard to make up for his sins. This is not an appropriate punishment for someone who attempted to murder children earlier in the story. Well, or did, in fact, murder them. I mean, and with cannibalism in mind, I'm like, that's a pretty sweet deal like oh you did this really horrible thing but you're repentant will you help me find bad children (laughs) so an alternate origin for Père Fouettard places his uh, origin in 1552 at the siege of Metz and this is a case of a historical event and a folkloric event happening at around the same time and eventually converging into one story through the cultural narrative So Holy Roman Emperor Charles V of Spain sent his troops to take Metz. And also, just as a heads up, if you guys Google or otherwise search for Siege of Metz, there are two of them. So again, this is the one from 1552. And at this time, uh, when these troops were sent in to take Metz, French forces bested them in battle. And an effigy of Charles V was set on fire and dragged through the city. So that is the real-life event part. And at the same time, allegedly, several adults from the community got together and they concocted this idea of a Punisher character who would whip naughty children on the Feast of St. Nicholas. So the idea of the dark, burnt figure and the judging whipping character kind of melded over time to become Père Fouettard. In the 1930s, the tale of Père Fouettard was adapted for English and, and American audiences as a Penny Dreadful character. And this time he was called Father Flog, and was not a holiday character so much as just a terrifying creature to frighten children into behaving. Father Flog gave bad children the whip and cut out their tongues if he believed they're lying. He also had a wife named Mother Flog, who was both kind and cruel depending on the behavior of the children that she captured and the pannier of her dress. Can we go back to talking about La Bifana, the Epiphany Witch? Because No, it's going to get so much worse before oh. it gets better. <laughs> uh, because speaking of the ladies on the list, we have a, uh, a lovely, and I say that with some irony, Icelandic ogress coming up. But first, we're going to have a word from one of the great sponsors that keeps the show on the air. We've talked a lot about how much research we do for the show and how tricky it can be sometimes to find the absolute best content online. But there's also the element of even when you're not maybe researching for podcasts like we are, you still want to find really cool and interesting information and be learning about the world. But it is really hard to separate the good stuff from the garbage on the Internet. There's just so many search results that come up. There's so many different places you can go. So 
Texture is here to help you find only the best things. Texture is an app that gives you an all-access pass to the world's best magazines. They're doing this right on your smartphone or your tablet. You can browse hundreds of magazines and pick out the really awesome articles that interest you the most. And the editorial team at Texture recommends stories for you daily. Plus, their curated collections will give you an opportunity to dive deeper into topics. If you sign up for Texture right now, in mere seconds, you will gain insider access to the very best reads as well as exclusive content. And you're going to have full access to the top magazines across just about any interest. Texture makes a great gift. This is the one present that you can give someone and you know they're going to use it again and again and really, really appreciate it. And the best part is that Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash history. Even better, you can give Texture as a gift, which is a great idea. So think about that. Uh, you can get some unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the one that is currently on newsstands. And you can also order this fantastic gift for you or a loved one. Just hop on in there before December 31st and your holiday giving is taken care of. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash history. Remember, you will get a wide array of magazines that you'll have access to on Texture. So even though we do a lot of history stuff and we talk about that, I also think we should point out that there are many other interests around that. If you read Billboard, you are covered. If you read Bridal Magazines, Brides is on there. If you like to cook, things like Cooking Light are on there. Wired is on there, which I love, 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 love. You're basically going to find anything Thing to, something to suit you no matter what your interests are. So hop on over to texture.com slash history and get in on this free trial and maybe get your gift giving handled. To go back to our story, Iceland has its share of troll mythology, and that includes holiday trolls as well. That sounded cheery to me. I imagined a little troll doll with a present, but this is not that. It is a terrifying, terrifying story. One of the most terrifying of these trolls may be Grilla who is an old lady troll ogress hybrid who puts a decidedly sinister twist onto Christmas. So we talked in our last episode about how Labafana is this amazing winter witch. And when you think of a classic image of a witchy hag, you're picturing something very similar to Grilla, and it is not sweet like Labafana. She has a terrifying face with a huge warty nose. She also has horns and hooves, and she has a massive black cat called Christmas Cat, which sounds sort of fun, but isn't. Uh, <laughs> she is always in a terrible mood, and she is always, always hungry. During the holiday season, Grilla travels through the towns and cities of Iceland looking for badly behaved children, and when she finds one, she stuffs it in her sack. Once she's found plenty of naughty children and her sack is full, she heads back to her cave in the mountains, there is an escape clause, though. If a child is truly repentant for his or her bad behavior, Grilla has to release them. So she can only capture legitimate, unrepentant misbehaviors. And all of those crying, naughty children that she has stuffed into her sack are apparently delicious to Grilla. She boils them alive to make winter stew. And eating people is something of a pastime for Grilla. She also ate her first two husbands, although in the, the mythology, she remains married to the third. Grilla also has children of her own, 13 of them. And they are all sons. They are also called the Yule Lads, and they are also Trouble. They have fabulous names, though, and their behaviors correlate to what they're called. The first one is Sheepcoat Claude, who tries to suckle the ewes in sheep sheds. 
Her next son, and these come sort of in order, one per night leading up to Christmas, uh, Gully Gawk slurps the foam from milk buckets in cow sheds. Then there's Stubby, who snatches food from unwatched frying pans, apparently causing him injury. I, uh, he's just short. I, uh. I thought it was a reference to his fingers being literally burned on the pan. Nope, not to the best of my knowledge, but I kind of understand because it's hard to resist delicious things cooking, which is why I also identify with the next one, which is spoon liquor. <laughs> and when I told my husband about this, who is a little germaphobic, he was so grossed out because spoon liquor, no surprise, licks the spoons in the house, uh, particularly ones that have been, you know, used to stir things that are cooking. And he st- sometimes steals the spoons. Pot scraper licks the tasty remnants from inside of pots. And bowl liquor hides under beds, and he waits for people to put their wooden bowls on the floor so he can lick them clean. These whole children are all hungry. (laughs) Their mom should feed them, but not feed them children. Door slammer was exactly as noisy as his name implies, and he prevents people from getting a good night's rest. Skier Gobbler steals all the skier, which is a dairy food similar to yogurt, uh, and he takes it all from people's pantries. Sausage Swiper, uh, we we have a bones pick with Sausage Swiper. Don't steal our sausage. D- I swear I will cut you if you come to my house, Sausage Swiper. <laughs> uh, window Peeper. Sounds like a creeper, and kind of is. He likes to just watch people, but he also sometimes steals toys. Doorway Sniffer uses a fantastic sense of smell to find cakes and lace bread to eat. Meat Hook uses a hook to steal meat. And like Sausage Swiper, he would lose a hand at my house. (laughs) Then there's Candle Beggar, who snatches children's candles. Uh, And, you know, at one point, candles were extremely expensive. uh, So that would have been unpleasant. And also left them in the dark, which maybe they were afraid of. Yes. Uh, and we should note that there are a number of variations on these names. This set was included in a famous book that translates to Christmas is Coming uh, that was written in 1932. And in the 13 days preceding Christmas, these boys, one at a time, rampage around Iceland, creating all manner of mischief. And of course, that mammoth black cat has a role to play also. According to the lore of Iceland, every person is supposed to receive a new article of clothing at Christmas. And as the Christmas cat prowls about, he eats anyone who's in violation of this policy. Uh, I feel like this is the way to make children feel grateful for the socks they didn't want by saying that, well, now the Christmas cat won't eat you. Correct. (laughs) Uh, Which is pretty funny. But then I, my, of course, I always have like this underdog mindset of like, what if people that don't have a, someone like doesn't give them a, the right gift? Like it's really, they're getting punished for yeah, somebody not well, giving them the clothing. My absolute first thought was, so no one gave me clothes. How is that my fault? Exactly. Uh, and Grilla's story reaches back at least to the 1600s. And like many of the stories we've talked about in this two-parter, this story was told in large part as a way to keep children from misbehaving. It's There's some pretty obvious cause and effect to this one. <laughs> and it worked. And it worked in some ways too well. Because by the 1700s, children were so thoroughly terrified of Grilla and her family that authorities actually had to step in. 
1746, there was a public decree issued in an attempt to control the guerrilla terror that was gripping the children of Iceland. And this decree prohibited the use of the guerrilla story on the part of parents as a fright tactic against their children. What this whole episode is really clarifying for me is that we we mistakenly believe that children misbehaving at Christmas time is some kind of newfangled invention brought about by overindulgent parents and or Santa Claus. But no, not the case, as evidenced by hundreds of years of other mythologies. Uh, the story of Grilla and the Yule Lads did continue even after this decree, but it got a little softer. The lads started to look a little more like Christmas elves, and they dressed in red and green, and they've taken on a more benevolent image, so they leave presents in children's shoes. They will, however, leave rotting potatoes, which smell disgusting, If you have never smelled a rotting potato, they are foul uh, if they deem the child to be naughty. Yeah, but a rotting potato is certainly better than being put in a stew. So that's a fair (laughs) trade. Correct. There's a, uh, as you said, I mean, many of these, you know, we've, uh, we talk about particularly in the U.S., this is an ongoing debate sometimes that like we, some people, think that Christmas time should be more focused on the religion versus sort of the Santa angle and all of the gifts. But really, you have to look at it in terms of these mythologies were serving very different purposes. Like there are people that have always celebrated it religiously, but that doesn't really leave an appropriate opening for this sort of didactic, potentially cruel angle. Like they needed the other characters to cover that or you better behave or you'll get eaten. You can't really fit that into the manger story as well. But <laughs> but uh now we are going to move on to Catalonia. And I kind of have this moment of, oh, Catalonia. Uh So I, if you've listened to some of our previous topics, particularly our, um, two-parter from our live show, you will know that I don't love to talk about scatological topics, yet it seems to come up for me repeatedly. (laughs) Uh, But I know that if we leave uh, the Caganer and Tio de Natal, also known as uh, Cagatio, off of this list, people will be disappointed and or angry. So here it goes. Uh, In case you have not heard or have never noticed, in the back of nativity scenes in Catalonia, there is normally a humble figure off in the corner pooping. This figure, the Caganer, which translates in the politest sense to the defecator, has been a traditional part of the Catalonia Christmas for at least two centuries and possibly longer. The exact reason the exact reasons why are a little more of a mystery though. There's one theory that it's tied to the idea of luck and harvest and fertilization. So uh, along those lines, the thinking is that to leave the Caganer out of your nativity would bring terrible luck and your vegetable crop would not yield in the following year. Another interpretation of his appearance in the nativity is more specifically religious. And that is that the man answering nature's call off in the corner is a reminder that God has plans and that something as significant as the birth of Christ can happen whether you were prepared for it or not. So the Caganer, it may be a little bit tricky for people who are not used to this concept to accept, but it is not a disrespectful thing. He is simply a human, and his placement tucked away in the back of the scene really indicates respect. Like he's trying to be out of the way about having to do this very natural thing, uh, versus if he were put closer to the front or out in front of uh 
Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So in some families, the Kaganer is actually part of traditions that are very similar to the elf on the shelf in the United States, as he is moved each night and the children then have to find him in the morning. And similarly kind of weird modern development around the Kaganer is the fact that this figures of this character have become kind of collectibles. And there are versions of it made to resemble the British royal family and the United States president and other various famous figures. In 2010, a Kaganer nearly 20 feet, that's six meters tall, was placed in a Barcelona shopping center and it garnered the Guinness World Record for largest Kaganer. We're going to talk about the other scatological Catalan Christmas tradition, uh, after we have another brief word from a sponsor. We are big fans of the great courses. That is no lie. Yeah, I hope no one's surprised by that knowledge because we have said it a lot of times. It is genuinely true. Uh, we love learning about so many things at our own pace just to do it for fun. And that is why we are really, really excited about Great Courses' new offering, which is the Great Courses Plus video learning service. This gives you unlimited access to thousands of uh, fascinating subjects. The Great Courses Plus has nearly 5,000 video lectures. They include science, history, photography, cooking, so much more stuff. They are taught by award-winning professors and experts from National Geographic, Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America. Really, like we said, the topics everywhere, all over the place. Uh, with The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want at any time from anywhere on your TV or your laptop or your phone. So you can select whichever subjects interest you. As many, It's completely unlimited as much as you want. Our listeners also get a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus for free for one month. The Great Courses series are normally priced between $200 and $300 a piece, but you get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library completely free for a month. It's awesome. We know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus, so sign up now for your free one-month trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. And now we'll get back to our story. So the Caganer is not the only Catalan Christmas tradition that features excrement. There's also Cagatillo, also called Tio de Natal. And this translates basically to the poop log or the Christmas log. Cagatillo joins the Catalan festivities on December 8th, the Feast of Immaculate Conception. It is a log, a log with a smiley face and a red Catalan traditional cap on one end. And uh, usually it has little legs on that same end, so it kind of sits at an angle. And the children of the household must look after Cagatillo. He needs to be covered with a blanket so he stays warm and cozy, and he needs to be fed turon, which is an almond candy, every evening. And he's also sometimes fed bits of orange peel is all meant to fatten him up. Sometimes he'll be larger in the morning than he was the night before, and the children have to continue looking after him and feeding him right up until Christmas Eve. Then, uh, on Christmas Eve, after a lavish dinner, and after the children have gone elsewhere in the house to pray, they then return to the log and they sing a song which translates roughly to, Cagatillo, hazelnuts, and turon. If you don't want to poo, we will hit you with a stick. You will see different variations of that um, translation, but really it pretty much all equates to it is time to poop out our gifts. We're going to hit you with a stick to make it happen. And then they do. They hit the log <laughs> they've been looking after with a stick. Uh, 
And then they reach inside the blanket and pull out fruit and candy and small toys similar to what you might find in a Christmas stocking in the United States. When Cagatillo is empty and has given all of his gifts, he'll sometimes drop something that's not very appealing, like a head of garlic or a piece of salt herring or an onion. Sometimes he urinates, which is just water. That is the signal that the fun is over. (laughs) And as for the historical roots of Cagatillo, those are also pretty fuzzy. So... It is possible that it is some sort of combination of the Kaganer and the traditional pagan Yule log, but with both of these traditions, we don't really have solid info on their origins. And there are actually two things about this Catalan pair of traditions that I sort of found myself having a brief revelation over as I was doing the research. So one, it's fascinating to me that these, unlike some of the others that we have, they don't have a, there's culturally been no need for them to concoct a backstory around it. Do you know what I mean? Like there are fables that go with all the others, but there's no like fable of someone going and finding a magical log in the forest. And there's none of that. They're just like, it's just part of our tradition. And the other thing I have to say, having started this segment out by saying that I'm very uncomfortable usually talking about pretty much anything scatological, that I kind of appreciate a culture that is not quite so hung up about bodily functions and that makes it a normal part of everyday life and even in some ways something that's celebrated. So those are my two revelations about Catalonian Christmas and the Caganer and Cagatillo. So uh, happy Christmas, everybody. (laughs) Happy holidays, whatever you celebrate. Uh, you know, it's the end of the year, so I hope all the things that you're wrapping up are going smoothly and that you have had more joy than grief this year and that everyone who is traveling is traveling very safely and that the coming year treats you better than any year has before, but it's not nearly so good as years to come. Do you also have listener mail? I do. I have two pieces of listener mail, and they are both about the Declaration of Sentiments, and they're fairly brief. The first one is from uh, Laura or Lara. It's based on spelling. It could be either. She says, Holly and Tracy, I just listened to your podcast on the Declaration of Sentiments. I am a teacher and I taught the Declaration to my eighth graders last year. Side note from me, right on. Teach those eighth graders. Uh, Thank you for teaching because we need great teachers. Back to Lara. She says, one of the questions students had after they read it was how many of these issues still exist. One of my students asked me, is it possible these all still exist? And I replied, sadly, yes. It was actually one of my favorite teaching moments where students made connections to history that are still important today. That is a really good point. We mentioned it in that episode that if you read the Declaration of Sentiments, the uh equality issues that were being addressed in that document are still very vital today. Like we're still fighting those battles 167 years later. I think that's the correct number. Uh, the next one is from our listener, Jessica, and she says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I just listened to your podcast on the declaration of sentiments from Seneca Falls. What an interesting story. I have taken many history classes and even work in a history museum, but I had never heard of the declaration of sentiments. The use of crowdsourcing in an attempt to find it is amazing. As a museum professional, I have seen this tactic used before with success at my museum. We post photos of unidentified people onto social media in an attempt to find out more about them. You would be 
be surprised at how well this works. We just had someone identified today that I have been trying to ID for months. There is hope that the declaration will be found, and social media is a great way to put the word out there. You never know what is lurking in someone's attic. I agree. Thank you, Jessica. She works, incidentally, for the Jim Getchell Memorial Museum uh, in Buffalo, Wyoming. And I... um. I agree. That's one of the reasons I was so excited about that project and about um, Megan Smith's efforts to kind of have it found. And people, I hope you are still out there on social media. If you have any information, sharing that information with the hashtag find the sentiments, because like she said, it's very possibly sitting in someone's attic somewhere or someone just knows some piece of the puzzle that's going to lead us to the next step. So that is all exciting to me. I'm still very excited about the Declaration of Sentiments. That was just a, a fun trip for me. And uh, it's, like I said, a cool project. It's important. Everybody can engage in history and be part of both creating it and uh, preserving it. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Instagram at history. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can do so by going to our parent site, HowStuffWorks, type in the word traditions in the search bar, and you will churn up an entire list of results about traditions uh, throughout the world, some of which will include Christmas traditions and holiday traditions like the ones we've talked about in today's episode and the preceding one, and some that are just other traditions around different cultures, which is always good fun. So we encourage you to visit us there at HowStuffWorks.com and also at MistInHistory.com, where you will find an archive of all of our episodes, as well as show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together. So again, visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MistInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 